and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. As always, thank you very much for listening. Before we begin today, I'd like to take a moment to thank all of you who have subscribed to the YouTube channel in the past couple of weeks. As we speak, I am in the process of uploading the rest of the backlog of episodes there, which should be done in the next few days. If you haven't had the opportunity to check out the YouTube channel yet, I strongly encourage you to do so if you're in any way interested. Anyway, without further ado, on with the show. In the last episode of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence, we covered events from roughly December 1918 to February 1919. In late December 1918, predominantly left-wing nationalist elements in Ukraine staged an uprising against hetman Pavlo Skoropadsky, the German-backed monarch of Ukraine. The unofficial leader of this uprising was journalist-turned-politician-turned-military leader Simon Petlora. Without the backing of the German army, Skorpatsky's regime collapsed almost immediately. Commanding a unit of elite ethnic Ukrainian riflemen, formerly of the Austro-Hungarian army, Petlura was able to quickly defeat what few elements remained loyal to the hetman, and entered the capital of Kiev on December 14th. The independence of the Ukrainian People's Republic was declared once more. The Central Rada, the previous government of the UNR, which had been overthrown by the hetman, was not invited to take over once again. Instead, a new government, known as the Directory, took power. The Directory was made up of five men, the most important of whom were Petlora himself and Volodymyr Venichenko. The Directory immediately sought to undo the conservative policies instituted by the Hetman's regime. Labor rights were restored, protections for national minorities were reaffirmed, and initiatives to Ukrainize public institutions were undertaken. But despite the Directory's lofty ambitions, it was, even as its defenders admit, a rather weak government, riven with internal conflicts and unable to effectively project its authority. The Directory's lack of control over the armed forces ostensibly loyal to it was one of the factors which led to a massive outburst of violence against Ukraine's sizable Jewish minority, which we discussed in detail in the previous episode. January 1919 marked the zenith of the Directory's success. It was by this point that they had managed to wrest most of the country away from the supporters of the Hetman. Also at this time, the UNR formally unified with its Western counterpart, the Western Ukrainian People's Republic. However, this state of affairs was not fated to last for long. At the same time that Petlura was leading his soldiers into Kiev, plans were being hatched in Moscow for a second Soviet invasion of Ukraine. Once again, the ideological divide between the Ukrainian revolutionaries and the Bolsheviks was the primary reason for the conflict between the two. But, just as the the uprising of General Alexei Kaledin had provided the Bolsheviks with a pretext to invade Ukraine back in 1917. This time, it was the intervention of the Entente powers in southern Ukraine that motivated the Soviets to take offensive measures against the country. The story of the Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War is by no means a straightforward one. From the Soviets' perspective, the Allied intervention seemed to them to be a concentrated effort of global capitalist elements to crush the socialist revolution. In July 1918, the Bolshevik Central Committee declared, quote, The Soviet Republic is facing a growing danger of invasion by the united hordes of world imperialism. End quote. To be fair to these united hordes of world imperialism, it was not the Entente's intention, at least from the beginning, to aid the forces of counter-revolution. Initially, the object of Allied intervention in the former Russian Empire was to prevent a total German victory on the Eastern Front of the First World War. 
From the very beginning, the Entente powers, primarily France and the United Kingdom, failed to formulate a clear, coherent policy on what they called the Russian question. They'd supported the provisional government and its efforts to keep up the fight against Germany, but when the Bolsheviks came to power and immediately signaled their intention to conclude a separate peace with Germany, the Allies scrambled to organize an effective response. They were willing to resort to extreme measures to keep the conflict on the Eastern Front alive, and therefore expressed their interest in aiding whatever elements within the former Russian Empire were willing to continue fighting against the Central Powers. A conference held in Paris around the same time as peace talks began at Brest-Litovsk divided the lands of the former Russian Empire into British and French spheres of influence, with the British preparing to move into the Caucasus, and the French were given the task of building up forces in Ukraine and southern Russia. There was already a substantial Allied presence within Ukrainian territory at this time. A French military mission in Kiev with close ties to the Central Rada had already been established, and the Czechoslovak Legion was also located in Ukraine at this time. However, the speed at which other developments transpired, that is to say, the Soviet invasion of Ukraine, the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, and the subsequent German occupation of the country forestalled any effective intervention by the Allies. In autumn of 1918, when it became clear to all that the Central Powers were on the verge of collapse, French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau sent orders to General Franchet Despery, commander of French forces in the east, to mobilize for a renewed intervention in Ukraine and southern Russia. Theoretically, the war's conclusion should have eliminated the need for further intervention in the former Russian Empire, but now, objectives had shifted. Less than a week after the November 11th armistice, a conference was held in the Romanian town of Iasi, where representatives of the Entente powers met with various anti-communist elements within Russian and Ukrainian society, such as landowners, industrialists, and liberal politicians. They requested military assistance from the Allies in overthrowing the Soviet government, Overall, they estimated that an Allied force of about 150,000 would be needed for this purpose. Disagreements arose when the question of what form of government would replace the Soviet came up, but all the Russians in attendance unanimously agreed on one thing. The territorial integrity of the former Russian Empire must be restored, at all costs. The Allies had committed to reforming a united Russia as the only way to create a strong, united, and anti-Bolshevik front. This policy was greatly complicated by the existence and popularity of the Ukrainian national movement. As it concerned Ukraine, those at the conference decided that it would be in their best interest to prop up Hetman Skoropadsky, who had just recently, in a desperate bid to win Allied support, declared himself in favor of reunifying Ukraine and Russia. In terms of official nationality policy, the Allies favored a policy of democratic federalism, a policy essentially the same as the one promoted by the provisional government, However, the Ukrainian national movement had long since moved away from desiring any sort of federation with Russia. In any event, the Allies did not trust Petlora and the Directory, who they believed were responsible for causing the anarchy in Ukraine, and who were regarded as being little better than Bolsheviks. In the final days of November 1918, a plan for the intervention was finally beginning to take shape. French General Henri Berthelot laid out his plans to a representative of the Volunteer Army. The plan was as follows. A combined French and Greek force would land at the Black Sea port of Odessa and quickly spread out throughout the country, maintaining public order in the wake of the German withdrawal and giving whatever support they could to local anti-Bolshevik elements. This representative relayed word of Bertolo's plan to General Anton Denikin, commander of the Volunteer Army, who gave it his full approval. 
When the first French soldiers disembarked at Odessa on December 18th, they learned that the Hetmanate had already fallen earlier that week. At the same time, forces loyal to the Directory were also entering Odessa. The Ukrainians were, understandably, none too pleased to see their city being occupied by a foreign power, but they were under strict orders from Kyiv to not attack the French. For their part, the entry of the Directory's forces into Odessa was an unexpected development for the Allies. They ordered the Directory's army to vacate the city to make way for an Allied landing. The French further antagonized the Ukrainians when they appointed a general of the volunteer army, General Alexei Grishin Almazov, a Russian nationalist, as governor of the city. Conflict soon broke out in Odessa, as a combined force of the Russian volunteer army, supported by Greek and French troops, pushed the unprepared Ukrainians out of the city in a battle that lasted around seven hours. If it had truly been the objective of the Allies to consolidate all local forces into united anti-Bolshevik front, they had demonstrably failed. In response to the outbreak of hostilities in Odessa, the Directory issued a declaration wherein they accused the Entente powers of supporting the forces of reaction, and pledging to, quote, fight to the last person in our ranks for the social and democratic rights of the toiling people of Ukraine, and for the national state form of existence desired by the Ukrainian people, end quote. Despite these bold words, Petlura and the Directory were still reluctant to declare war on France outright, as they still believed that the Entente represented their best hope of fending off Soviet aggression. The Directory dispatched two of its members, named Nazaruk and Ostapenko, to Odessa to establish contact with the Entente. They were able to secure an audience with Colonel Freidenberg, chief of staff for the commander of the French occupation forces. The colonel informed the two envoys that French aid to the Directory was still a possibility, but on a number of conditions. Firstly, Venichenko, who he suspected of harboring Bolshevik sympathies, must be ousted from his position in government to be replaced with a new director amenable to the French. The Allies would allow the Directory to have an army of 300,000, which would receive supplies from France, but it was to be commanded primarily by Russian generals, formerly of the Volunteer Army. Additionally, France asked to be given jurisdiction over Ukraine's finances and railway infrastructure. In exchange, France would extend its official diplomatic relation to the Ukrainian People's Republic. The two envoys then dutifully relayed word back to Kyiv of the results of their negotiations. Petlura was furious at the steep price that the Ukrainians would have to pay for French support, and insisted on complete non-interference in Ukrainian internal affairs. When Nazaruk and Ostapenko met with Colonel Friedenberg once again and informed him of Petlura's stipulations, Friedenberg now insisted that both Venichenko and Petlura would have to go. He justified Petlura's exclusion from government by saying that France could not collaborate with a bandit chief, citing the fact that he had been arrested and convicted as such by the Hetman's authorities. The colonel also presented two new demands as a precondition of French support. Firstly, hostilities with the Second Polish Republic, the Entente's new ally, had to be brought to an immediate end. Secondly, the ministers of the Hetman who had been arrested following Skoropadsky's flight from the country would have to be released from prison. By late January 1919, it was becoming readily apparent to the Ukrainians that negotiations with the French were going nowhere, and with Ukraine being beset by the Soviets in the east and north, the Poles in the west, and now the Entente in the south, their situation was looking increasingly hopeless. Still, the Directory saw no alternative but to continue talks with the French. On January 26th, Justice Arnold Margolin departed Kiev for Odessa, 
where upon his arrival he established cordial relations with the French, and put forward the case for a policy which he called Federation from Below, a policy whereby local separatist governments such as the UNR and the Belarusian Democratic Republic would be recognized for the time being pending their unification into a federalized Russian state. These plans ran into trouble when they were presented to General Anton Denikin, who made it very clear from the outset that he opposed even temporary autonomy for the Russian Empire's breakaway states. In any event, nothing was to result from these talks, and the second Soviet invasion of Ukraine was well underway. In the last episode, we discussed the actions of the Ukrainian Bolsheviks after they were ran out of the country at the end of German bayonets. The party was still divided between those who believed that the Ukrainian Communist Party should be directly subordinated to Moscow, and those who believed that the Ukrainian party should be allowed a wider degree of autonomy. The events of the party's first and second party congresses resulted in a victory for the centralist faction. On November 20th, 1918, a new provisional Soviet Ukrainian government was founded. It was led at first by Georgi Pyatkov, a noted Russophile. However, Pyatkov was replaced in early 1919 by a man named Christian Rakovsky. Rakovsky, who was an ethnic Bulgarian who held Romanian citizenship, was fiercely devoted to the cause of international socialism, and as such, he opposed Ukrainian nationalism. The new Ukrainian government was made almost entirely of men who, like its nominal head, likewise opposed Ukrainian nationalist ambitions. Reflecting this reality, the Ukrainian Soviet government was not even founded on Ukrainian territory. It was founded in the Russian city of Kursk, and it was housed in a single rail car in the train station there. From the beginning, it was clear that Rakovsky was not truly the one in charge. Rather, it was Vladimir Antonov of Sinko, the head of the military, who held the real power in government. The tense and unofficial truce between Kiev and Moscow ended in January 1919. The Russian foreign minister, Georgi Chichirin, took full advantage of the Directory's ongoing, yet fruitless, negotiations with the Entente powers, to claim that Petlura and his collaborators were selling out Ukraine to the French capitalists and imperialists. Chichirin also flatly denied that Russia was invading Ukraine, claiming that, quote, military action on Ukrainian territory is proceeding at this moment between the troops of the Directory and the troops of the Ukrainian Soviet government, which is completely independent, end quote. Disingenuous as these rhetorical tactics may have been, they, when combined with initial Bolshevik military successes, were effective in enticing many regional warlords, or Ottomans, and their soldiers to defect to the Red Army. One such Ottoman was named Nikifor Grigoriev. Grigoriev was a former officer in the Russian Imperial Army who had served with distinction in the First World War. Following the October Revolution, Grigoriev returned to his home village in Ukraine and quickly amassed a warband of local peasants, becoming one of several regional warlords in Ukraine, known as Ottomans. Grigoriev was rather notorious for his numerous defections. Initially, he had participated in Skoropadsky's coup that overthrew the Central Rada. Later that year, when it became clear that Skoropadsky's government was bound to fall, he changed his allegiance to the Directory, only to defect once more to the Bolsheviks when it became clear that they were on the ascendancy. All sources describe Grigoriev as a, quote, unskilled, untrained, and undisciplined commander, end quote. However, what he lacked in these qualities he made up for with a certain charisma and a willingness to overlook the crimes committed by the men ostensibly under his commands. Grigoriev obstinately refused attempts by Antonov of Sinko to install any semblance of discipline within his ranks and threatened to defect once more if the Red Army commander attempted to issue him any more direct orders. 
Antonov Osinko was willing to overlook this subordination on account of the combat effectiveness of Grigoriev's force, and for their numbers. By February 1919, Grigoriev commanded some 6,000 men. While the forces directly under Antonov Osinko seized Kiev on February 4th, as mentioned in the previous episode, Grigoriev and his army struck south towards the Black Sea coast. Grigoriev's forces took the port cities of Kherson and Nikolaev in March, and by the end of the month, they were threatening Odessa. Grigoriev sent an ultimatum to the city's governor-general, Alexei Grishin Almazov, threatening to have him flayed alive and to have his skin used as a drum if he did not surrender. By this point, the Allies had about 25,000 troops garrisoning the city, while Grigoriev and the Red Army had between 30 and 40,000 at their command. It was looking as though a climactic battle might be about to occur, but the reality of the situation was is that the Allies were in no position to offer any effective resistance. The situation in the city was rather grim. Refugees who had streamed into the city since the French occupation had swelled the population. The presence of enemy forces in the countryside effectively cut off the city from the rest of the country. As a result, basic provisions had become practically unobtainable. Unemployment reached as high as 80% in some sectors. An epidemic of typhus raged. Crime was rampant. These circumstances provided local communist sympathizers with ample opportunity to foment labor unrest within the city. Equally susceptible to Bolshevik propaganda were the occupying soldiers themselves, the majority of whom were simply tired of war and had no real desire to fight and die in Russia for a cause that they weren't even sure of. Faced with the knowledge that a military confrontation with Grigoriev was sure to end in almost complete disaster, on April 2nd, the French announced that they were withdrawing from the city. The evacuation of Allied forces from Odessa was just as chaotic and just as confused as their occupation itself had been. Complicating matters were the white Russian refugees, who clamored to board the Allied ships as they left. Local dock workers went on strike and refused to aid the evacuation. However, by April 6th, all Allied soldiers, supplies, and about 50,000 extra civilians had evacuated the city. That day, Grigoriev entered Odessa in triumph, declaring in a telegram back to Moscow, quote, After incredible violence, sacrifices, and tactical maneuvers, the French, Greeks, Romanians, and volunteers have been cut to pieces at Odessa. They have all fled in a terrible panic. End quote. Grigoriev claimed exclusive credit for the capture of Odessa. In another telegram to Moscow, he asserted that it was his men who had captured the city, and that no regular Red Army units had participated. This was most certainly not true. Antonov Vosinka was growing increasingly concerned with Grigoriev's insubordination and grandstanding. At the same time the Soviets were occupying Odessa, developments to the west demanded their immediate attention. On March 21st, Bela Kuhn, a Hungarian socialist revolutionary and personal associate of Vladimir Lenin, overthrew the existing Hungarian provisional government and declared the foundation of the Hungarian Soviet Republic. This newborn republic was beset on all sides by hostile forces, primarily Romania. Kuhn appealed to Moscow for assistance, and it was decided that the Red Army should go on the offensive against Romania. In April, Antonov Osinko devised an offensive operation against Romania, and he ordered Grigoriev to lead it. Grigoriev, who disdained to be ordered around by Antonov Osinko, then defected. On May 9th, he issued his own universal, declaring his opposition to the Bolsheviks and his intention to form a new Ukrainian government of popularly elected workers' councils. Antonov Osinko attempted to coerce the warlord into falling back into line, with no avail. Before long, Grigoriev's forces grew to 15,000 men, 
With the help of ten armored trains, Grigoryev's men cut a bloody swath across the Dnieper River, capturing several cities in rapid succession. Grigoryev's men mercilessly plundered and devastated each town they came into possession of. Jews were especially targeted. Grigoryev's relatively small band is credited with committing 5% of the pogroms during the Civil War. Meanwhile, the Directory, after having fled from Kiev back in February, relocated to the city of Venezia in the west. There, Venichenko tendered his resignation, and Petlura resigned as well, not from the Directory, but from the Social Democratic Party, in the hopes that such an action would make him more palatable to the Entente. These two actions did not, in fact, garner the Directory any more Allied support. In fact, they had the unintended consequence of further alienating the peasants, who began to flock to the Bolsheviks in greater and greater numbers. For their part, the Soviet position in Ukraine was at this time similarly precarious. The new Soviet administration had, in a relatively short period of time, managed to alienate both the radical intelligentsia and a critical mass of the peasantry. The intelligentsia was alienated by the government's refusal to support Ukrainization initiatives, while the peasantry balked against forced requisitions of grain by Red Army detachments and the collectivization of agricultural land. The Reds' increasingly untenable position led them to seek out alliances with other independent warlords in the region, of whom Grigoryev was merely one example. Another example was the famous anarchist chieftain Nestor Makhno. Makhno and the movement he led are honestly deserving of an entire series of their own, but I feel it would be a disservice to allow the series to end without giving them at least a brief overview. Nestor Ivanovich Makhno was born in 1889 in a poor peasant family in Hulayapol, a small town in southeastern Ukraine. During the revolution of 1905, the young Makhno joined an anarchist group. Three years later, this group was arrested and tried for the assassination of a police official. Makhno received a life sentence and was sent to a prison in Moscow. He was released following the overthrow of the monarchy when the provisional government announced a general amnesty. After this point, he returned to his native Lyapol and resurrected his old local anarchist group. The Central Powers occupation of Ukraine in early 1918 forced Makhno to flee the country for the relative safety of Soviet Russia, where he met personally with such figures as Lenin and the famed anarchist theorist Peter Kropotkin. Makhno returned to Hlyapol in July 1918 and organized an army to wage war against the forces of the Hetmanate and of the Central Powers. As I've hopefully managed to convey by this point, Makhno and his warband were just one of many which operated in Ukrainian territory during this period. What set Makhno and company apart from the others was their distinctive ideology. To quote historian Laura Engelstein, quote, Makhno's goal was to organize a movement that would not replicate the government institutions, but would promote the self-activation of the laboring masses. Its goal was, on the one hand, to abolish by revolutionary action private property and land, and to make it the property of the nation, and on the other hand, in concert with the urban proletariat, to abolish the possibility of new privileges and the domination of one group over another. End quote. The ideology espoused by Makhno was a direct repudiation of the ideal of the nation itself, which therefore put him in opposition to both the reactionary Russian nationalism of the white movement and the more left-wing nationalism of the Ukrainian national movement. While Makhno disagreed with the Bolsheviks on the all-important question of the state, their mutual enemies and the relative similarity between their ideologies led the two to form a sort of alliance of convenience. The Bolsheviks were surely appreciative of Makhno's assistance on the southern front. Makhno's army, officially dubbed the Revolutionary Insurgent Army of Ukraine, 
was a surprisingly effective fighting force, and Machneau himself was a proficient military organizer and strategian. The most iconic weapon in Machneau's arsenal was the Tachanka, a horse-drawn cart with a mounted machine gun, which was quite effective in hit-and-run attacks. In addition to helping install Soviet power in his corner of southeastern Ukraine and constantly harassing the armies of Denikin and Petlura, Makhno also proved instrumental in dealing with the Soviets' Grigoriev problem. A Red Army detachment under General Clement Voroshilov undid most of the damage done by Grigoriev's defection and wrested most of the captured cities away from their control. After having suffered these defeats, Grigoriev turned to Makhno, offering to combine forces for a united anti-Bolshevik front. Makhno and Grigoriev, it should suffice to say, did not quite get along. Their tumultuous alliance lasted only three weeks, until when, at a meeting on July 27th, Grigoriev and Makhno got into an argument, which ended with Makhno personally shooting Grigoriev to death. Makhno was right not to trust Grigoriev, as it was later revealed that he was in contact with the White Army, and planned to change his allegiance once more. Makhno's alliance with the Reds was not fated to last long, however. Despite Makhno's assistance in southeastern Ukraine, the Soviet military situation was steadily deteriorating. In the spring of 1919, the Soviets were threatened in all directions, from Admiral Alexander Kolchak in the east, from General Udenich in the northeast, and General Denikin in the south, who was advancing through Ukraine straight towards Moscow. In Ukraine, as previously mentioned, peasant agitation against Bolshevik policies of grain requisition and collectivization posed a serious challenge to Soviet power in the region. Given these failures, Leon Trotsky, putting his centralizing instincts on full display, laid the blame for the Red Army setbacks in Ukraine on what he called partisans China, that is to say, the tendency of military leaders in the field to act independently of central authority. Trotsky insisted on directly subordinating all Red Army forces in Ukraine to his command, including Makhno. Antonov Ovsinko still believed in Makhno's effectiveness and defended his actions towards Moscow, claiming, quote, Makhno is no bandit. He will not turn against us. He is absolutely loyal and devoted to the cause. He is fully committed to crushing the counter-revolutionary Cossack and officer classes, end quote. Antonov Ovsinko's defense of Makhno was not sufficient enough to stop Trotsky from relieving him of his command in June 1919, and from denouncing his operation as mere banditry. Quote, it is inconceivable to permit on the territory of the Soviet Republic the existence of armed bands which do not recognize the will of the working classes, that seize whatever they want and fight with whomever they please. End quote. The eventual break between Makhno and the Soviets was more or less inevitable given their stark ideological differences. Makhno was convinced that his conception of free Soviets based in villages constituted the authentic form of Soviet government. He saw cities, in particular Moscow, as centers of what he called the paper revolution, a term which he believed accurately described the ultimate artificiality of the Bolshevik form of governance. He regarded the Bolsheviks, with their instincts to nationalize and centralize, as proponents not of authentic communism, but rather of state capitalism, an economic and political system which subjected the working classes to a form of exploitation different from that of the bourgeoisie, but nevertheless just as oppressive. Anyway, it is with that digression that I will end the narrative for now. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks for the next and final episode of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence. As the course of the Russian Civil War will turn in favor of the Reds once again, the Ukrainian nationalists would be forced to make unlikely alliances in order to save their country from Soviet domination.
In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in this episode's description. I also highly encourage you to check out the show's Patreon page and the eBay store for ways to support the show financially. Also, be sure to check out the YouTube channel if that interests you in the slightest. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'd like to thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Nolan Connor, signing off.